have lived in Cincinnati, Ohio for about a decade and a half, but I was born and primarily raised in Detroit, Michigan. The Detroit of my adolescence was, well, interesting. I was born in the city, and after a few years of my family moving around the country, we came back to live in the city in the late 1980s, settling on Detroit's Far East Side. My formative years came at the tail end of the Coleman Young mayoral administration, and I came of age during the dense Archer years. We didn't have a lot of money growing up. We weren't really poor, we never wanted for food or a roof over our heads, and we always had presents on Christmas. But what little extra money my parents had went towards sending us to Catholic schools. No name brand clothes or shoes, not a lot of vacations, especially once my younger sister and I were both of school age and my baby brother was born. But we still had family time. In the summer, we would pile into the car and just go for a ride. My dad loved to drive. We didn't have a specific destination. Once in a while, we would go on a day trip to some place like Windsor or Tecumseh, which are both right over in Ontario, Canada. One time we went up to Port Huron and rode across the bridge to neighboring Sarnia, which is also in Canada. But a lot of times we would just ride around in or around Detroit. We would ride through the city and my parents would point out the Renaissance Center or the Seven Sisters or the Ambassador Bridge or the area where Black Bottom once stood. Or we would ride around Belle Isle and see the Detroit River. And my dad would tell stories about the general history of the area or family history related to where we were riding by at the time. Some of the stories were lighthearted while others were a bit dark. All were fascinating. And then we would play games, like pointing out the out-of-town license plates or certain types of cars. One game we played, my dad would just randomly tell us, get down, and we would duck into a fetal position. That particular game wasn't exactly a game though. Much like my dad teaching me how to guide the steering wheel from the passenger seat well before I knew how to drive, the ducking game was part and parcel of living in the city during this time period. In the 1980s and 1990s, Detroit already had the national reputation as a dumpster fire, both figuratively and literally. During this time period, Detroit had several stints as the murder capital of the United States. It was also the home of Devil's Night the night before Halloween. While in other parts of the country, Devil's Night, or Mischief Night, was known for pranks like egging and teepeeing. Devil's Night in Detroit meant rampant arson. Detroit got a bad rap for a lot of reasons, which I've gotten into in other episodes. Some deserve, some not so much. It was the poster child for either a failed war on poverty or a widespread racial segregation and white flight, depending on who you asked. But to me, it was home. Our neighborhood was kind of strange. We didn't have drive-bys or murders on our block. As a teenager, my sister and I would ride our bikes to the village in Gross Point or to Eastland Mall or the shopping center by St. John Hospital and have a slice or a square of Buddy's Pizza. In high school, I was on the track and field team and our team ran the two and a half miles from campus to Baldock Park and back. A bunch of teenage girls running. We were never assaulted or robbed doing these things. It was a life most people would see as a normal life, a normal childhood. But the danger was never too far away. 
There was a nightclub around the corner called Club Med, but we all called it Club Dead because of the shootings that happened there. One time I remember a body being found by the neighborhood elementary school. And then in high school one time, we were placed on lockdown because a guy chased down and shot another guy in cold blood on school property. And then the summer after I graduated from high school, the mother of one of my sister's friends was murdered in a home invasion. One of the purposes of urban renewal is to address the dangers often pointed out in urban environments in cities like Detroit and Cincinnati, such as crime, pollution, and lack of maintenance. But what often gets lost is that most of the people who live in these places are just regular, normal, law-abiding people doing the best they can with what they have. When their neighborhoods are revitalized, these are typically the very people who are forgotten. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. final episode of the two-part series on urban renewal in the United States. In the first episode, I discussed the history of how neighborhoods targeted by urban renewal plans, neighborhoods with high poverty rates and with a large population of people of color, were created in the first place. I also told the story of the raising of Cincinnati's West End neighborhood in the 1950s to make room for Interstate 75 as an early example of urban renewal and as an illustration of how these policies have led to the destruction of thriving communities of color. If you haven't listened to the first Urban Renewal episode, definitely check that out. One of the events that inspired me to discuss Urban Renewal is this. Last month, Donald Trump ramped up his attacks on congressional representatives from American cities, particularly representatives of color. He sent out a tweet targeted at The Squad, the group of four freshman Democratic congressional representatives that have been extremely critical of the president, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley. Trump tweeted this, quote, So interesting to see progressive Democrat congresswomen who originally came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe, the worst, most corrupt and inept anywhere in the world, if they even have a functioning government at all, now loudly and viciously telling the people of the United States, the greatest and most powerful nation on earth, how our government is to be run. Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came? Then come back and show us how it is done. These places need your help badly. You can't leave fast enough. I'm sure that Nancy Pelosi would be very happy to quickly work out free travel arrangements, end quote. All these congresswomen are U.S. citizens. Three out of the four congresswomen are native-born. Two of the three, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ayanna Presley, likely have lineages in the United States that go back further than Trump's. But the subtext is clear. These congresswomen are women of color. One is a first-generation immigrant and two are Muslim. All represent cities, 
the Bronx, Minneapolis, Detroit, and Boston, and their districts include cities that are populated by mostly people of color or have significant non-white communities living within their borders. Then, Trump persisted in his targeting of politicians of color, going after long-term Democratic Congressman Elijah Cummings of Baltimore. After Cummings was the victim of a break-in at his home, Trump tweeted this, quote, really bad news. The Baltimore house of Elijah Cummings was robbed. Too bad, end quote. Just remember that this is the president of the United States. Now, Baltimore has been in the news quite a bit in the past several years due to the killing of Freddie Gray by police and resulting unrest. Attention has also been paid by Trump and the right to Baltimore's crime rate, one of the highest in the country. Yet, Baltimore, like other cities, has enclaves of poverty and wealth and violence in Baltimore's poorer neighborhoods, which, like Cincinnati and Detroit, are the result of historical housing discrimination and the creation over the generations of a permanent underclass that is largely governed by race. And few outside of these urban neighborhoods notice their existence, except for street crime and riots. The faces of young Black and Latino men plastered across the TV screen during the 6 o'clock local news, accused of murders, robberies, and other offenses against victims who are rendered faceless and noted more for their perceived faults than what they meant to their friends or families, except in the off chance that the victim is white. Then there are riots. I talked about the Cincinnati riots in part one, and more recently than that, there were riots in Ferguson, Missouri, and in Baltimore, all due to allegations of police brutality that ended in the deaths of young Black men. Riots are not unique to Black people destroying their own neighborhoods. White people riot too, and historically, race riots typically involved white mobs targeting and destroying Black neighborhoods. Now, more recently, riots involving white people have typically involved sports, but are not characterized as senseless or criminal, or thugs running amok, just fans having fun. Jessica Roy of New York Magazine ran a story in 2014 highlighting a Twitter user at Red3Blog who listed, with pictures, several incidents where white people rioted over non-political causes, usually sports, such as Penn State over the firing of Joe Paterno and the Boston riots due to the Red Sox winning the World Series, where a woman was killed by a crowd control pellet launched by police. None of these riots were characterized in the same way as riots involving black people, such as Ferguson, that are over important things like police brutality or other race-related issues. When I was at Ohio State in the early 2000s, there was a riot just off campus every year I was there, right after the OSU-Michigan game, which included arson and property damage. Cars would get flipped, and couches and dumpsters would be set on fire. A literal dumpster fire every year. The Columbus police were barely a presence during these actual riots, and they would claim there was little they could do to stop the post-Michigan game unrest that happened every single year. But somehow, the city police found a way to show up to lock down campus during the African-American Heritage Festival each spring. These weren't riots at all. These were just a few days of events that were displays of Black history and culture. My first time experiencing Block Party, which was another name for the festival, was amazing. 
but police, some of the white students and faculty, and probably some of the residents, were fearful due to the fact that the festival at that time attracted black people from all over the state. Over time, the extreme police pressure pretty much killed the festival to where by the time I graduated, it was but a shadow of what it once was. Impoverished neighborhoods that are only noticed by the general public for street crime or rioting black people tend to be the target of urban renewal programs. The most broad way we can define urban renewal is that the term refers to land redevelopment targeted towards inner city neighborhoods with the purpose of transformation of some sort. The transformation most often has in mind tourism and or the attraction of lucrative businesses and higher income residents. This process is also termed urban revitalization, the idea being to invest in poor urban areas in order to modernize them and make them more attractive to private investment. This process is also called gentrification, mostly by detractors of urban renewal. Gentrification refers to the improvement of an area in order to attract middle or upper class residents. So what led to this modern wave of urban renewal efforts? As I discussed in detail in part one, housing segregation in much of the United States, including the North, during the early 1900s, led to neighborhoods that were segregated by race and with fewer and stratified employment opportunities available to people of color, as well as the government and private banks systematically denying access to home loans for Black Americans. This led to impoverished Black communities inhabited by renters instead of homeowners. These conditions were made worse by early urban renewal programs, such as the interstate system implemented in the 1950s, that displaced communities of color across the United States, destroying Black-owned businesses and deep community bonds that were key to the stability of Black communities. Due to suburbanization of much of the U.S. after the Second World War, fueled by GI Bill perks that only white veterans could access, in white flight from urban neighborhoods that began during this period, existing housing segregation patterns were exacerbated. This left people of color, particularly black Americans, in neighborhoods that were losing their tax base and rented homes that were increasingly owned by absentee landlords who rarely even checked in, much less maintained, their real estate investments. In the early 1960s, unemployment for black Americans was well above the national average, and half of the black population lived below the poverty line, compared to only one-fifth of whites. The solidification of a permanent underclass living in urban ghettos in the U.S. was such an issue that in the last year or so of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s life, he, as well as other civil rights leaders, decided to shift focus from mainly focusing on Southern segregation in public places to combating rampant housing segregation and overall persistence of poverty in the United States as a whole. While Dr. King's assassination in April of 1968 led to over 100 urban riots in cities across the country and is often seen as the end of the civil rights movement. The riots immediately after Dr. King's death were by no means isolated. Several riots occurred in the 1960s prior to Dr. King's assassination, including riots in both Detroit and Cincinnati, as well as Atlanta, 
Tampa, Florida, and in Newark, Plainfield, in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And that was just in 1967. Earlier in the decade, riots took place in places like New York, the LA neighborhood of Watts, and in Chicago. This is not an exhaustive list. While Dr. King was alive, he said of rioting, quote, a riot is the language of the unheard, end quote. In the midst of these trends, President Lyndon B. Johnson rolled out a series of programs collectively called the War on Poverty, first discussed in 1964 and then rolled out from 1964 through 1965. The War on Poverty created Medicare and Medicaid programs, expanded Social Security, made food stamps a permanent program, created the Job Corps, Federal Work Study for College Students, subsidized school districts with large populations of students that were in poverty, as well as a number of other programs. While many of these programs that constituted the War on Poverty still exist today, funding for these programs, and even in some cases, their existence, have been on the chopping block in both Republican and Democratic presidential administrations ever since Johnson left office in 1969. The data is mixed in terms of whether or not the war on poverty actually reduced poverty. The poverty rate, as currently measured, stayed roughly the same over time, and right-wing and centrist think tanks such as the Heritage Foundation and the Brookings Institute point to this when arguing that the war on poverty was largely ineffective. Using this measure, the Brookings Institute in particular argues that while these programs did alleviate poverty among children and the elderly, it did little for poor Americans as a whole. Other think tanks, such as the Urban Institute, disagree, pointing to the fact that the poverty rate in the United States is based on pre-tax income and doesn't take into account government assistance or household expenditures. According to a 2013 study out of Columbia University by a group of researchers led by sociologist Christopher Weimer, when using the supplemental poverty measure implemented by the U.S. Census Bureau that takes into account these other metrics, poverty from 1967 through 2011 has fallen by 40%. It's hard to know how effective the war on poverty was because it wasn't given a lot of time to take effect without meddling from subsequent presidential administrations. Also, evaluating its effectiveness depends on how we view the best way of measuring it. I think there can be a case to be made for both the official poverty rate and the supplemental poverty measure. But while it may have helped some Americans, we can agree that it by no means ended poverty in the United States or even ended the existence of urban ghettos. And with the war on drugs and the defunding of the war on poverty, as well as other social ills, the issue of concentrated poverty in urban centers got to the point where, once again, the solution of urban renewal was back on the table. As more and more states and municipalities are beginning to realize that the drug war has been a waste of resources, restrictions are slowly beginning to loosen on marijuana, hemp, in their chemical components. With the loosening of restrictions has come research into the medicinal uses and benefits of these substances. Recently, Nick and John of Stranger Still came out with a wonderful episode about CBD. If you don't already know much about CBD, which is a component of marijuana and hemp, listen to their episode. 
They unpack the hype and the science behind CBD. And the episode is entertaining and informative as always. I learned a lot from it. So definitely check it out. Listen to Stranger Still on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts, or go to their website at strangerstillshow.com. And for all the awesome shows on Flying Machine, go to flyingmachine.network slash shows. In Cincinnati's Over the Rhine, a lot of energy has gone towards preservation and renovation of many existing structures. Due to the area's history, a lot of older real estate dating back to the 1800s still exists that probably would not have existed under normal circumstances. I discussed in part one that with the destruction of Cincinnati's West End, the mostly black residents made their way into other neighborhoods, though their choices were limited due in part to housing segregation. One of the areas these displaced residents moved to was Over the Rhine. Over the Rhine was originally a German immigrant enclave, but they mostly moved out around the time of the Great Depression and were replaced by poor whites from Appalachia who moved to the city to find work. Now, in the 1950s and 60s, displaced black Westenders began moving into this area and lived side by side with the Appalachians until the Appalachian population eventually moved out to suburbia. Over the Rhine was never a wealthy area, but by the time the 70s rolled around, the area had fallen into disrepair with a lot of abandoned buildings, buildings that were not well maintained, and a dearth of businesses with the exception of liquor stores and a few struggling storefronts. Now, at this point, developers were interested in buying swaths of land in Over the Rhine and redeveloping the area. But from 1973 through 1996, Over the Rhine had a very strong anti-redevelopment community led by activist Buddy Gray. Gray ran a homeless shelter in the neighborhood and was a controversial figure in the city due to his steadfast defense of the neighborhood's poor and homeless, and his 1960s-style confrontational, in-your-face tactics. He felt very strongly that redevelopment of any kind, whether the property was set to be raised or restored, would lead to gentrification and impoverished residents would be pushed out of the area. So Gray decided to buy up many of these buildings and essentially sat on these properties. He also fought against historic place designations. This tactic was unsuccessful. But overall, Gray's efforts kept away much of the redevelopment in the neighborhood. In 1996, five years before the Timothy Thomas shooting and resulting urban riots that placed Over the Rhine in the national spotlight and renewed urban renewal, Buddy Gray was shot and killed by a man he had previously helped who had a history of mental health issues. While there are others who continued his efforts with the homeless in the community, his activism could not be replaced. Because of this tug of war that lasted for decades between activists like Gray and the developers and city officials who wanted to redevelop over the Rhine, by the time redevelopment was back on the table in the 21st century and historic preservation came into vogue, there was still, behind all the boarded up windows and doors painted to look lived in, much of 19th and early 20th century over the Rhine left for preservation, so it could still be useful, lived in, and beautiful 
for the next 100 years. In the past 25 years or so, privatization has been a huge mantra for both Republicans and Democrats. And this has been a huge influence on the direction of urban renewal efforts around the country. I'll discuss a couple of federal programs that have been implemented over the past few decades to address and remedy the ills in poor inner city neighborhoods. In 1993, the Empowerment Zones and Enterprise Communities Act was passed by Congress and signed into law by President Bill Clinton. Administered by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, Communities across the country would compete for designation as an empowerment zone. To be considered eligible for the program, a neighborhood had to demonstrate economic distress. Markers for this included high unemployment, an official poverty rate of at least 20%, a declining population, and a pattern of corporate divestment from the community. Eligible communities also had to demonstrate the potential for economic development and the capacity to develop public-private partnerships. Once they could demonstrate this criteria, they would need to apply with the assistance of local and state governments and would need to include a strategic development plan. The strategic development plan would include input from stakeholders, including government agencies, businesses, religious and community organizations. The plan also required an outline for funding including private funding and support for urban renewal efforts, as well as goals and ways to measure success. Neighborhoods selected to become empowerment zones were given access to tax incentives and federal grants in order to encourage businesses to invest in these communities and for residents of empowerment zones to obtain jobs. The program had three periods of competition called rounds, held in 1994, 1998, and 2001. Results were mixed. There was some evidence of increased minority business ownership, but it was difficult to determine if this was due solely to the empowerment zone provisions. On average, larger corporations were more likely to take advantage of the empowerment zone tax benefits than smaller businesses. Though, from my research, I wasn't really able to find out why this was the case. The Government Accountability Office, or GAO, had a difficult time nailing down the effectiveness of the legislation because not enough data was maintained by the government to draw conclusions. In particular, the Internal Revenue Service couldn't track the exact locations where the tax credits were being used, which is kind of nuts. The other program that I want to talk about is more current, and this is part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. More commonly known as the Trump tax reform bill or the Trump tax scam, depending on who you ask. The bill is best known for having a temporary tax cut on most individual income taxes, but the reduction or elimination of many tax exemptions that affect most middle and working class Americans. That has led to many Americans, myself included, being shocked by higher federal tax bills earlier this year. The tax reform law is also known for including deep corporate tax cuts, lowering the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21%. But another piece of that legislation that might be a bit less well-known involves urban renewal. This provision is intended to encourage private investment in poor and undercapitalized communities. According to the provision, Neighborhoods are chosen by state and U.S. territorial governments to receive designation as Opportunity Zones by the U.S. Treasury Department. 
there are no hard and fast requirements for neighborhoods themselves to be eligible. It's left in the hands of state governments as to what areas they want the federal government to designate. Corporations and individuals with capital gains can qualify for the program, which provides substantial tax benefits for investing unrealized capital gains in these designated opportunity zones. These investments are pooled into a fund called an opportunity fund that can be used to finance a broad spectrum of activities and projects with few exceptions. After 10 years, investors can sell their holdings from the fund without tax liability. According to the Tax Policy Center, opportunity funds can finance industrial, commercial, and residential real estate, infrastructure, startups, and existing businesses. For real estate projects to qualify for financing, the investment must result in substantial improvement of these properties. According to the Urban Institute, while designated opportunity zone areas are high unemployment, high poverty, low income neighborhoods, there's minimal targeting of the program towards divested communities. A major criticism of the Opportunity Zone program is that in some cases, the Opportunity Zone designation has been given to communities already undergoing urban renewal, rather than communities that are struggling and lack existing investment. For example, Cincinnati's West End neighborhood was selected as an Opportunity Zone, but at the time it was selected, it was already being eyed as a possible location for a new stadium for FC Cincinnati the city's major league soccer team, and was eventually chosen for the development. So this is a good time to discuss, in general, the pros and cons of urban renewal, particularly the most popular model today, redevelopment in poor urban areas led by public-private sector partnerships or led almost entirely by private developers. Now, there are good things that can come from urban renewal. More resources, including financial investment, job opportunities, infrastructure upgrades, and services get poured into historically underserved communities. For example, it's often said that you know when a rundown neighborhood is being targeted for urban renewal when a Whole Foods or Starbucks moves in. Key retailers that many of us take for granted, such as grocery stores, are often scarce in poor neighborhoods. The resulting food deserts, as well as the lack of other infrastructure, often leads to higher rates of obesity and worse health outcomes for inner-city residents. Urban renewal brings in these needed resources and can improve the health and welfare of residents. Urban renewal can also lead to the development of renovated, modernized housing stock. Now, how this is done depends on the city and those involved. This can be a good or bad thing. To be honest, I'm not really a fan of neighborhoods being torn down for nondescript big boxes and cookie-cutter condos, but if older housing stock is being renovated, preserved, and repurposed, I think that's largely a positive. Also, new higher-income residents moving into an area means a larger tax base, so that's more money for the neighborhood and more funding for citywide improvements, such as public transportation. If socioeconomically diverse households are supported by urban renewal efforts, it can reduce housing segregation. This is a huge deal for a couple of reasons. Housing segregation has, both historically and today, led to extremely harsh conditions for those steered into urban ghettos and has limited opportunity for economic mobility and overall health and stability. 
Reducing the segregation improves conditions for impoverished Americans. It is also beneficial for people in higher socioeconomic categories, giving them an opportunity to become more empathetic and well-rounded as they have more exposure with people of different classes. And if they're in a position to hire and employ others, they have access to a more diverse talent pool. Businesses that draw from a diverse talent pool can tap into more creative, out-of-the-box ways of thinking about problems and effective ideas to improve their businesses. Now, at the same time, there are a number of negatives that I think are important to consider. When urban renewal is taken with an eye towards gentrification, long-time residents may not necessarily get the benefit as they may be pushed out of their homes to make way for developments catered to wealthier residents. Even if they aren't pushed out through eminent domain or higher rents, the neighborhood itself, including new retail and other businesses that open in the gentrifying neighborhood, may price out lower-income residents and those residents may be forced to move much like what happened with the residents of the 1950s West End, losing their community and having to start over, either in another ghetto or in a neighborhood that is falling into disrepair due to white flight and divestment. Gentrification can also exacerbate housing shortages more generally and price out not only people in poverty, but the middle class as well. A well-publicized example of this is in San Francisco, where real estate investors and developers buying up land and building and renovating housing stock to attract wealthy buyers has meant that most people in the region, including people who work there, are having a tough time finding a decent place to live that they can actually afford. Even if the focus is more on integrating a neighborhood racially and economically, culture clashes can occur. Newer, higher-income residents may see diversity as a plus in the abstract, but find the actual interactions with people different from themselves more challenging than expected. And they may continue to hold on to beliefs that paint racial minorities or poor people in a negative light. They may also advocate for changes to the neighborhood, such as municipal ordinances and initiatives that are more out of self-interest than overall neighborhood improvement. The kinds of changes that alter the flavor of a neighborhood and are geared more towards what they might be used to in bedroom communities and suburbs they may have come from. And by the same token, longtime residents can grow to resent the new outsiders and the change in the culture of the neighborhood. They may not view the neighborhood improvements that have come with development as being resources that are geared towards them or that they are welcome to use. In my research, I remember coming across an article about the Over the Rhine redevelopment where a long-term resident was asked about the improvements to Washington Park, the local park in the neighborhood that has been heavily renovated and is now the center of free community events such as movie nights and yoga. The resident made the comment that while the park was within short walking distance, it felt like a world away and she didn't feel like she belonged there. While in some cases, urban renewal can be undertaken with an eye towards historic preservation, in many cases, developers aim to demolish and rebuild. This means the loss of irreplaceable architecture and historic landmarks, and major changes to the character of the neighborhood. I've seen this happen in the off-campus neighborhoods of both Ohio State and University of Cincinnati. Their off-campus areas were very similar, gritty with the danger of being robbed, but with the most interesting people. 
hand handlers and street preachers. There were stores, restaurants, bars, and nightclubs that were unique, interesting, and fun. But over the past several years, these neighborhoods have been torn down with chain retailers, chain restaurants, corporate bars and nightclubs, expensive apartment complexes and condos, as well as parking lots to take their place. Regular students on financial aid or working their way through college can't even afford to rent there anymore. And the character of these neighborhoods are now more saccharine and antiseptic. One other issue that comes up when it comes to urban renewal is that these redevelopments are often driven by public-private sector partnerships or almost entirely by the private sector. On one hand, at least in theory, this reduces the burden on taxpayers and the regeneration of a neighborhood is not dependent on government but on the strength of businesses. But on the other hand, private businesses at the end of the day are motivated by profit and unlike local and state governments, private sector groups are not accountable to the public. In 2002, a year after the Cincinnati riots, then-Mayor Charlie Lucan did away with the city's planning department. Much of what the planning department did ended up in the hands of a private nonprofit corporation founded in 2003. This private corporation is the Cincinnati Center City Development Corporation, or 3CDC. The board of directors at 3CDC includes representatives of Procter & Gamble, Kroger, Macy's, and many other giant corporations. Over the years, 3CDC has been able to buy up a great deal of property in Over the Rhine and elsewhere and restore and redevelop it, attracting new businesses and residents to these redeveloped areas. They've also funded and managed the redevelopment of Washington Park and other public works. 3CDC has been credited by city leaders and journalists for the turnaround in Over the Rhine. Once a blighted urban landscape, now a vibrant, mixed-income district, geared toward attracting professional millennials. But the idea of a city essentially placing all urban planning decision-making into the hands of a private corporation who has been explicit about answering only to their board and not to the voters is deeply problematic. While 3CDC is a nonprofit organization, it is being run by people who represent for-profit corporations. With capitalism's profit motive, there is always the danger of profit over people. Like the Citizens Development Committee or the CDC 60 years ago, there is nothing stopping 3CDC from displacing longtime residents and displacing poor black communities in Cincinnati once again, which critics say is already starting to happen. This lack of accountability means that the direction of Cincinnati's urban landscape for the foreseeable future is in the hands of corporate America. Thank you very much for listening to Potstarer Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. Go to potstarerpodcast.com slash download and links to the show on the list of podcast players are posted right there. If you subscribe, you can download episodes as soon as they're up. So no lag time, no waiting. Want to share your thoughts on an episode or talk about any issue related to politics, religion, or history? Go to the Potstirer Podcast discussion group, enter it in the Facebook search bar, and click to join. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.
I give you the incredible flying machine. <laughs>